0: Do you remember what you wanted to be when you were a child? I, uh, I grew up in the middle of the Midwest in the state of Indiana. And you know, in the Midwest, it's pretty quiet, which means when you're a kid, a lot of times when you're playing in cornfields and wheat fields all day, You're just kind of left up to your uh, own imagination to do things. Which means when I was a kid, I wanted to be a lot of different things. At one point, I I wanted to be a lizard. I can't tell you why. Um, At one point, I wanted to be the superhero. At one point, I wanted to be a fireman. Um, And then when I was about six years old, I came across the movie Rambo. And for from six until 33, I've wanted to be Rambo ever since. So do you remember what you wanted to be when you were a kid, though? Um, We all, in some capacity, we wanted to be the superheroes who catch the girl falling from the skyscraper. We wanted to be the astronaut who flies to the moon, right? Or uh, Or the princess who could sing to the birds. You know, I think in a lot of ways, life has a way of beating that childlike imagination out of us, doesn't it? I mean, you uh, you get hurt, you get burned again, you spend all of your time helping that one person heal. Only once they heal, you're thrown away by the wayside and they don't need you anymore. You might invest all of your money into that one big thing all for it to just blow up in your face. Maybe Maybe you lose something or maybe you lose someone. And it's like there's this um, thin layer of hardness that begins to build up around in our hearts when that happens. Because when you get hurt and you get hurt some more, that layer gets thicker and thicker. You lose more money and more people and it gets thicker and thicker and thicker. And that layer around your heart just starts giving you different names. Names like cynical and jaded, status quo, mundane. This is just how it is. And with each and every passing day, you move away from participating in the beauty and the imagination of this world to just becoming another spectator. See, I think in a lot of ways, I I don't believe that this is what it means to be fully human. And I don't think that is what God intends for our lives. In in Psalm thirty four eight, the poet says, taste and see that the Lord, that God is good. And taste, taste is about full experience of your senses. It is um, a full immersion in the new thing that God is doing in this world. Taste is all the encounters that we have, not only with the divine, but humanity around us. Taste is understanding that there is so much imagination and wonder and awe simply humming underneath everything that you encounter every single day in this world. Taste is about your awareness that God is here and now and you have a participation in that relationship. And what happens when you taste the goodness of God? I think you begin to see it. Because once you you taste it, I think your eyes become open to the new thing that is happening right in front of you and i would argue that here and now jesus continues to invite us to this taste a couple of weeks ago we talked about how uh how creation is created in seven days now in both jewish and hebrew imagination numbers are extremely important Like in, in the scriptures the number uh seven was massively symbolic because there are seven miracles that are recorded in scriptures from Jesus and seven just like creation is the number of completion. However, Jesus' resurrection was the eighth miracle. So if seven refers to the completion of a thing, the completion of creation, the completion of one world, what would then eight signify? it would signify a brand new world you see at the very the very heart of the jesus story is that a new world was brought into existence through jesus and that we are being invited into it we are being invited to taste and to see you know there's um there's one moment that really sticks out to me it's kind of like a kind of like a hint, hint, nudge, nudge. It comes out of the book of John in John 20. There's this moment after Jesus has been resurrected that he sees one of his dear friends, Mary. Now, Mary was standing outside of the tomb crying. This is what what it says. As she wept, she stooped and she looked in and she saw two white robed angels, one sitting at the head, and the other one at the foot of the place where the body of Jesus had been lying. Dear woman, why are you crying? The angels asked her. She replied, because they have taken away my Lord, and I don't know where they have put him. She turned to leave, and she saw someone standing there. And it was Jesus, but she didn't recognize him. Dear woman, why are you crying? Jesus asked her. Who are you looking for? And Mary thought that this was the gardener. So she said, sir, if you have taken him away, just tell me where you have put him and I will go and get him. Mary, Jesus said. And at that moment, she turned to him and she cried out Rabbani, which is Hebrew for teacher. But then this is the interesting part that happens. Jesus says, don't cling to me. For I haven't yet ascended to the Father, but go find my brothers and tell them I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. And so Jesus being resurrected, right? He looks at his friend and Jesus says, don't touch me. Now on the surface level, this seems maybe a little like interesting um, and like kind of weird, but you know, we're talking about constant curiosity today. So we have a lot to dig into this passage. Now, there is so much symbology that is packed into these few verses. Um, let me ask you this question. Have you ever lost someone and you kind of just knew that like parts of your life that you had before had like died with them? For Mary... The death of Jesus was a symbol that everything she loved about life with Jesus had come to an end. But you know, when she sees Jesus, she clings to him believing that she could go back to the life that she had before rather than realizing that, again, Jesus' resurrection was to lead her forward into something brand new. And if we look closely I think we will see that there is an old world here and there is also a new world. And the entire message of Jesus is about the invitation to make a new world. So when we talk about this new cultural rhythm called constant curiosity, let us frame it like this, that a new world is on the other side of collective imagination. That this new world that Jesus is inviting us into, that as a, as a community, we can collectively imagine and then create this brand new world that Jesus invites us to participate with. Okay, so how, how do you leave an old world and how do you, how do you make a new world? Um, I think it actually has a lot to do with Pam Cooking Spray. Okay, I know it's a really weird phrase, and yes, I said Pam cooking spray, but let me explain. The other night I was uh, making dinner, and um, a little bit of like curiosity came came over me. I'm spraying a cooking uh, or a, a pan with Pam cooking spray. When I look down and I see the ingredient list, and then I see the serving size on the bottle. Did you know? that the serving size for Pam cooking spray is one quarter of a second. Like at some time there was like, there was a meeting of a bunch of like, probably some old people sitting around a desk from like Office Depot and they literally had a meeting to decide how many seconds one spray would be for a serving size of ham cooking spray. And when they realized one second was too long, they literally took that second, split it up in four, four different pieces and said it's one of those four pieces, one fourth of a second. Constant curiosity. If you want more curiosity, just lower the bar in your life, right? And so I see, I see that serving size, so then I start looking at the ingredient list. And I realize that one of the ingredients in Pam cooking spray is this thing called propellant. And so the next thing obviously that I do is like any good millennial would, I get on I get on Google and I type in obviously in all caps, why is there propellant in Pam. And so I'm I'm already I'm already invested into Pam Cooking Spray at this uh, this point. So I figured I might as well continue. And I start wondering, like, who is Pam? And why did she put propellant in my cooking spray? Then I found this out. Pam stands for product of Arthur Meyerhoff. So I start Googling Arthur Meyerhoff. And when you Google Arthur Meyerhoff's bio, this is the first thing that pops up. It says that... Arthur Meyer, Meyerhoff's innate curiosity and inventiveness were balanced by a caring nature and a willingness to help. Um, Arthur ha- <clears throat> excuse me, had a love of farming that led him to develop this company. I think it's called Mizon and to experience um, this like, new thing that he wanted to create that was antibiotic food supplements for livestock, a poultry company. He also loved horses and he was able to make this like new, very like um, creative saddle for for, like ranch horses. He also was the guy who created the steps that you um, use to get out of a pool, right? Now, this guy's a massive inventor. Obviously, he was responsible for the success of Pam Cooking Spray. Um, and I think even at 80 years of age, he began to take flying lessons. Okay. So I tell, I tell you all that because he had this massive curiosity about things and he has this zest for life that enabled him to pursue these ideas for like a workable and sometimes like profitable end to all his products. But that's not how Arthur's story started. He actually started out as a poor, low class kid who loved two things science and baseball. He, um, like his bio said, also had this like caring nature and willingness to help people. Now, this was early on in post-World War II and baseball was just coming back, roaring back as a family favorite. However, women still weren't allowed to play baseball. And something about Arthur, he took this personally. He actually helped develop the um, All-American Girls Baseball League, right? Right. Um, if you look this up, um, you might find a movie called A League of Their Own uh, with Tom Hanks and some other actors in it. Um, That movie was based off of uh, Arthur Meyerhoff's invention. Crazy, crazy, right? One story inside of all this is about this lady named Carolyn Davis. Now, mind you, all of this is before Pam, And so I I started reading about this lady named Carolyn Davis. I'm asking myself like, how did Arthur go from baseball and science to to Pam? And this name Carolyn Davis came came up over and over again. So in 1945, she was a pitcher for a women's baseball team. And during uh, spring camp, Arthur notices she has this like growth-like tumor on her neck. So Arthur begins to ask her about the growth and she said that she's not sure what it is, but it's been growing for some time. And Arthur immediately becomes worried. And so Arthur begins to wonder, what can I do to help her? Because he sees this growth and he gets that this like could be something serious. And so Arthur says to himself, I need to do what I can to help her get rid of this tumor. But Arthur has no money because he spent all of his time playing baseball. And baseball at this point did not pay for your bills. But then Arthur remembers one of his other loves. Science. You speed up the story. Over the next year, Arthur creates PAM. And when spring camp arrives the next year, Carolyn and her tumor, Carolyn's tumor is gone because Arthur paid for a surgery to get rid of it. And he could pay for it because he created this new thing called PAM. And he was selling it to restaurants and investors and he made enough money to get rid of it. You see, I found this insane beauty um, and justice-driven story of gender equity and of innovation all because of a serving size on the back of a can of Pam. Because when you stay curious, you just continue to keep searching for the thing under the thing, under the thing. And sometimes when you dig, you find things that bother you, like propellant in your food. But then you keep digging more and more and hoping and searching for something even more. And then you find stories of justice and beauty and gender inclusion and equity. Now, if you can do that with Pam, what happens when you do that to your faith? What happens when you do that to the bible yeah because at a glance genesis is a really good creation poem until you get curious and you begin to ask questions about it and then you realize that the babylonian creation story was written 500 years before it and the genesis creation poem looks eerily similar and you can stop at a quarter second of a spray or you can keep digging and digging and digging. And you can realize that this story was written down because Israelites were in captivity and they wrote down, um, they wrote down the story of creation as a way to like liberate um, them from the nation of Babylon. Um, you can do this with so many other things with Amos and the widening gap between the rich and poor. How I think America looks a lot like Egypt and Babylon in the book of Genesis than it does Israel. Um, you can even do this with proper care for the earth, and you can see in the book of Isaiah that um, that proper care for the earth is actually been very central to the whole thing. Here's a big one for you: How about that? There's this new modern theology that took the book of Revelation and made it to into this end times apocalyptic book. Because the original ancient Hebrewism of the Bible is Jesus saying, I'm making all things new. So the Bible isn't about the end of us, it's about the future of us. It's about where we will take this world. Um, what we have the end of the Bible is an invitation to make all things new. And then the Bible ends. Okay, did you get that? Like it's an invitation to make all things new and it ends. Because there isn't a one, two, three guideline. There isn't a black and white, this is just how you do it. All we have is the promise of the message of Jesus and then the invitation to help make all things new. And how do you make all things new? I would argue that it first starts with you asking a lot of questions. Staying constantly curious. And so if you stay constantly curious, if you have a community-driven collective imagination, I would argue that you will begin to see a new world that is bursting forth here and now, that collectively looking at this world and seeing everyone always and literally risking all of that and choosing the wild, you can create a new world, a new world that's bursting forth with life and love and inclusion and equity and belonging for all people and all things. You see, the real crisis at the heart of humanity It's not getting the future figured out. I think it's in a lack of imagination here and now to insist that what we see is just the way it is and to fail to see that the great invitation of being human is to actually change what could be. So constant curiosity, collectively uh, imagining what the world can look like, Jesus-centered wisdom to make all things new. See, in a lot of ways, the Jesus message is like how we used to imagine the world when we were a child. It is this invitation to a brand new world. And I often wonder if we begin to choose curiosity to embrace the gray space of the Bible, the gray space of Jesus, the gray space of our entire spiritual belief system, I often wonder if you find new ways of being human in that experience and then new ways of building a new world here and now. So may we start asking a whole lot of questions. May we see that curiosity can be the engine of our lives that curiosity can actually be the thing that hums underneath all cultures and all people. Because if we stay curious about what is happening here, you may just see that you have the participation in a new world that's bursting forth here and now. So may you stay constantly curious and may peace and love be with you every step of the way.